Well, welcome to episode five of the Madness and Grace podcast. Today, Matt and I are joined by Dr. Michael Lyles. Dr. Lyles, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm just fine. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Hello, Emily. You doing okay today? Yeah, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm very excited about uh, this conversation today. So let me introduce our, our guest, Michael Lyles. Uh, he completed his undergraduate and medical school studies at the University of Michigan. He also completed a psychiatry residency at the Duke University of Medicine, where he was an American, a psychiatric association, and National Institutes of Mental Health Minority Fellow, and North Carolina Neuropsychiatric Association Resident of the Year. He was at one time the assist, an assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Kentucky, and while there, he was awarded the Kentucky Colonel Award by the governor of Kentucky for advocacy work on mental illness in eastern Kentucky. He entered the private uh, psychiatric practice in Atlanta in 1986. Since that time, he's held medical leadership positions in inpatient, outpatient, and partial hospitalization programs for psychiatric and addictive behaviors. Uh, he is someone that I've known for a long time. And, and as I was saying earlier to both of you, when I was thinking about things that we would talk about uh, on this podcast uh, around questions I've been asked and, and concerns or or kind of issues that people have about uh, getting mental health treatment, medication has always been one of the biggest things. And I could think of no better person to talk about medication than Dr. Michael Lyles. Michael, thank you for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Dr. Lyles, the first question we had for you is what led you to become a mental health provider in the first place? Uh, I uh, had thought about becoming a pastor when I was a teenager after I had uh, made a religious commitment when I was 14, uh, but was led to go to medical school instead. And when I interviewed for, and one of the reasons I thought about being a pastor is because I grew up in a community around a lot of people who had tremendous emotional needs, and I was wanting to address those spiritually. When I interviewed for medical school, I could not spell psychiatry properly. I knew nothing <laughs> about it, and um, uh, but told them I wanted to be a missionary uh, and deliver medical services to people in uh, an underserved community not realizing that my third year of medical school, I began to realize that psychiatry might be a place God was calling me to serve and that uh, the Christian community was an underserved community when it comes to mental health needs. And through uh, a number of, of things that I won't go into, including meeting Frank Minnerth, I uh, ended up going into psychiatry uh, to be a medical missionary in the psychiatric world uh, with Christians. It's always interesting to see how God kind of moves us. We think we know where we're going, and he kind of moves us around where he needs us to be. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, talking about it going into psychiatry, one of the things that I find uh, when I uh, am engaging people that are looking for mental health services is there's tremendous confusion uh, uh, in their minds of, of what different providers do, or there's this kind of, like, for instance, I have a PhD, which I'm a psychologist. You have an MD, you're a psychiatrist. What's the difference between what you do or I do or a, or a psychotherapist or, or whoever? And so I was wondering if maybe you could describe kind of the role of the psychiatrist in the treatment of someone with a mental health problem. Uh, the thing about it, uh, I went to medical school to go into internal medicine and spent most of my medical school training focusing on becoming an internist. Like I said, it was the end of my third year of medical school. It's only four years uh, that I decided to go into psychiatry. So I spent three out of four years preparing to do something totally different. Uh, but that was actually wonderful because what a psychiatrist does is takes a look at the behavior and problems that a person is having emotionally 
and try to make sense out of, is this something psychological? Is this something, as a Christian, spiritual? Is this something medical? For example, I saw somebody today who had a horrible depression after having COVID. We know that was because of having COVID. But that's because as a psychiatrist, we study the medical aspects of behavior, the neurological aspects of behavior. And in contrast to someone who has a PhD like you, who's become an expert on therapy and assessment issues of someone without the medical training or someone with a master's degree, a therapist who's more skilled at delivering the therapeutic resources for someone. A psychiatrist, when I trained, I'm very old. When I trained 40 years ago, as she introduced me, I felt even older. Uh, they actually did train us to become therapists. Now, the people coming out now wouldn't be able to spell therapy because they're trained in very exotic medical and neurological treatments and assessment. So the value, the uniqueness of a psychiatrist is, if they're doing their job as an MD, to take a look at a behavior change and assess whether there's a medical etiology or neurological etiology to it, that medication or some somatic intervention would help. Right. And do you find typically uh, it beneficial for your patients to receive both psychiatric treatment from you and also see a therapist for a talking therapy? For the vast majority of people, uh, that is the way to go. Uh, Because even let's think about it. This person I saw this morning uh, who had a horrible psychotic episode after having COVID, uh, yes, I was able to diagnose that, yes, that's what it was, and these are the treatments we needed to get you back. But this person has all this residue in their life of embarrassment and trauma that has happened because of what happened. They need to talk about it. Uh, she has questions about, why did God let this happen to me? There's a spiritual input to it. Uh, her brother and her mother are looking at her differently now. They need help. So the vast majority of my patients, even if they have a really clear-cut medical etiology need both. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, just to kind of give uh, our listeners kind of a a demarcation when training changed, what you find is that most psychiatrists that were trained prior to 1980 were actually trained to do therapy and give medication, pharmacotherapy. And after 1980, this huge growth in uh, psychiatric medications has led the training to change so much to where it's much more kind of neuroscience, pharmacology, it's much more in that direction. And there really just isn't time for that training anymore in those individuals. So they're a real different type of really a pharmacotherapist. It's kind of, you know, a a person who treats with medication. Uh, And so uh, it's just a different way of thinking about it. Certainly very beneficial. And now that we're kind of on that topic of medication, you know, finding the right medication, as you talked about trying to find that medical etiology of what's going on there or a mix of medications that can take time. And I think a lot of times, particularly in this kind of fast paced uh, society we live in, we want that quick fix, magic bullet, Fix me by mm-hmm. Monday so I can get back to work and everything will be great. Can you give our listeners kind of a sense of what that process looks like for you and a client to try to kind of figure out uh, what that right medication, the right dose, the right mix, what, what does that look like and what kind of time frame are we typically looking at? My daughter is a high school French teacher and she teaches English speakers how to speak French. And what I feel like as a psychiatrist is uh, someone that's doing a language translation because my patients come in and they tell me their story, i.e. their symptoms. And my job as a psychiatrist is to take their symptoms and correlate it with what part of the brain 
uh, would explain these symptoms. What, what, which neurotransmitter system in the brain is usually associated with problems with these symptoms? And, and so I'm taking their symptoms, translating it into brain language, if you will, and trying to correlate that with, is there a known disease entity or syndrome that we know of that might explain this? Or could it be a side effect of a medicine they're taking or a drug interaction with medicine they're taking or because of a medical problem they're taking? And, you know, a lot of my focus is on the neurological, psychiatric, medical aspects of how we would explain their problems. And then with that uh, assessment, come up with a treatment plan that tries to correct that. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times that's based on their story. We may use uh, lab testing, blood work to try to get more uh, guidance about that. We might use uh, psychological testing uh, to get more guidance about that confirmation. We may use genetic testing to determine uh, if there's evidence of how they might metabolize a treatment. And then we put them on a medication profile, if appropriate, and that can take anywhere from two to six weeks for something like that to work. It's not an instant thing in most cases. So it is a time involved. And usually from the moment of beginning to the moment the person is well, say with depression, you're talking about if you get it right the first time, four to six weeks before the person is getting back to the way they were before they got ill. Do you typically find that when people are also getting a psychotherapeutic intervention, a talking therapy intervention, that you tend to prescribe them kind of them less medication or that it's maybe easier to deal with the medication? How, how do you see those two going together? Uh, if someone, because you, I'm going to tell you, most of the time, even if we're able to come to some deduction about a medical or, or psychiatric etiology for their problems, there are a lot of other things going on that influence that in their life. And if they're doing the talk therapy, they tend to uh, need less medication and get better quicker. And the vast majority of my patients, the first thing out of their mouth is if I have to take a medication, I don't want to take it forever. What's the right. least amount of time I can take this medication? Is Am I going to get addicted to it? Is it going to change my personality? Uh, and the bottom line is, um, you know, most for most situations, there's a time period that they have to take the medicine for. And I tell them, let's not cheat that. Let's do that. Uh, and then when you get, if you do the therapy, that time period may be less. You come off medicine sooner, you have a better a prognosis for not needing to go back on something if we do it right the first time. Um, you know, you mentioned just a minute ago, people coming in and saying, well, I don't want to be on a medication forever. And a lot of times, you know, we'll have a client come to the clinic who clearly has a, you know, a mental health problem that it has a, a very heavy neurobiological aspect to it, schizophrenia, bipolar, where we mm -hmm. know that medication is going to be a part of that treatment. And they immediately say, I just want you to know I'm not taking medication. You know, I'm here to get treatment, but I'm not taking medication. So could you give us some sense of the, the, the types of kind of concerns that you hear from clients about taking medication or that, you know, that hesitancy, oh. what would you say oh, yeah. to a person or family that was hesitant to be involved with psychiatric treatment. A friend of mine, one of the problems of getting older is that you go to funerals more often. And I went mm -hmm. to a funeral this past Saturday of the wife of a friend of mine. I'm at a funeral, okay? And as I'm leaving, uh, this woman I know came up to me, her son has bipolar disorder. And she goes, Dr. Lyles, my son has said he wants to stop taking his medicine and wants to know if you could give him advice on how to stop taking his medicine. He's been hospitalized three times when he stopped taking his medication. And I told her, I said, first of all, he has a chronic problem. This is not something you stop taking medicine for. Uh, 
because he needs it long term, like like blood pressure medicine right. and diabetes medicine. Uh, but people don't want to take medicine because uh, they think it means uh, that there's something wrong with them spiritually. They have to take medication uh, that they're going to get addicted to it. It's going to change their personality. Uh, people will think less of them. Uh, I had a patient that led a Bible study, a women's Bible study, and she didn't want the ladies to know that she was taking an antidepressant because they wouldn't let her lead the Bible study. I encouraged her to come clean with them. And when she did, out of 40 women in her Bible study, eight of them were taking mm -hmm. an antidepressant and dealing with depression. It actually led to her ministry being better. What I tell people is that Jesus never healed anybody the same way twice. Uh, there's a lot of ways that people get healed. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Naaman came to Elisha wanting to get healed in 2 Kings and said, you know, I heard all these big miracles you've done. I want the big thing. And he told him to do something very mundane. And he got upset and said, I'm not going to wash in a river. I mean, right. that's just boring. Right. I, mean, I want the big, I want the big splash. And in a lot of Christians that way, they say, I don't want to take medication, even if it's working, because I'm supposed to get healed miraculously. Right. And everybody know it like they do on TV. And that's, you know, God reserves the right to heal people the way he wants to. And sometimes it's something like Paul telling Timothy to drink some wine for his stomach, which right. was the recommended treatment for stomach problems in that time. I, uh, I read an article um, a couple of weeks ago, and the title of the article was Sometimes God's Healing Providence Looks Like Prozac. And I just oh, thought wow. that was just <laughs> such a great title because and, and she, it was written by a woman and she just spot on got it. She basically said what you just said. And that is, you know, these, these are, you know, good things come from the Lord and, and God has equipped individuals to develop these things. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, Hezekiah gets healed with a poultice of figs and there's all kinds of physical remedies in the scriptures. Why would we, uh, you know, move away from that. And, you know, I see that, and I'm sure you see this too. I don't know if you want to comment on this. I see it, you know, there's a, there's a difference uh, in when clients don't want to take medication. I mean, sometimes with our more seriously ill clients, they're not fully aware of how ill they are, or they have kind of delusional con ideas around medications or paranoia about being poisoned or something. And and I, I understand that more than I do the family that says something along the lines of, well, you know, uh, we don't want to take medication because, uh, you know, we just believe that God will heal him or we don't want to him to take medication because then, you know, that shows he isn't really trying hard enough to kind of move beyond this. Uh, and those are the things where I, you know, I don't get it because really what you're saying is my, my loved one is ill and I'd rather they suffer through this without the remedies that exist. There's a weird self-righteousness in that or, or something in the sense that like, well, I'm not that way. We just kind of work hard and we aren't that way. Uh, what do you, you know, you, you've mentioned spirituality very often here and, and the idea of faith in the context of this, you know, as a person of faith and a psychiatrist, you know, what, what would you say to the family or the individual who said, you know, I don't want to take medication because, you know, I, like I said, I had a client, literally his Bible study teacher told him to stop taking his medicine because God wanted to heal him and he needed to show God that he trusted him. So what would you say to someone who said, had real spiritual reservations about taking medication? Um, would you do that if someone told you to stop taking your high blood pressure medicine? Uh, I, I want them to be fair. If you really, really believe that, let's, let's be fair about it. Let's stop taking your blood pressure medicine, your diabetes medicine, your arthritis medicine. Right. Let's be complete about it because if that's true, it applies to everything. Let's not pick psychiatry. 
Uh, to me, as somebody who trained to be an, an internist and went into psychiatry, I don't see any difference between what my patients are going through with brain disease and if they had arthritis or diabetes. Right. These are all maladies of different organs of the body. The brain is just a different organ. And if you, I'm a cancer survivor. Nobody told me when I had cancer not to take the treatment and to trust right. God. I had people tell me that maybe I got cancer because I didn't trust God in the first place. But for treatment, they never told me to right. not, as, a, as an act of faith, don't go for the treatment. Don't take the radiation. No, absolutely. And I, you know, I think that that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, and, and you don't see that uh, in faith communities. You see, you know, what I would refer to as inconsistent theology, you know, uh, blood pressure medications. Okay. That's within God's economy, but psychiatric medication is somehow different. I, I think, you know, and, and you certainly probably see this more so even than I do. I think just generally uh, people in the, uh, in our culture are very naive to the, to the brain as an organ. Yes, uh, it, it's like where we have like kind of an empty head that has just some kind of a cloud of a mind floating around inside of it. And your brain is really, you know, I mean, I taught neuroanatomy for years in, in uh, neuro graduate programs. And, uh, you know, it's it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's three pounds of meat, you know, in your head. I mean, it can be messed up just like your heart or your liver or your kidney. And, and, you know, I think it's interesting how you had your training as an internist and then you went into psychiatry because uh, you very, you probably have, I would ask you this, it, I, I imagine you have a much more, much more of a whole body sense of mental health problems. Yes, because it is, do you know that your brain can become insulin resistant, pre-diabetic? Wow. I mean, the brain is just wow. like any other organ. Uh, right. it, you can have circulatory problems. You can have inflammatory problems. The reason these people with COVID get sick is because they get a microinflammation in the brain. The brain has the same issues as everybody else. In fact, the organ, people always complain, uh, compare the brain to the, uh, to the pancreas of diabetes. The brain is way more like the heart because mm -hmm. everything that's bad for the heart is bad for your brain. Everything that's good for your heart is good for your brain. And if your brain is disordered with depression or chronic anxiety, your risk of heart disease, heart attacks, arrhythmias is three times that of the general population. Your brain is the only organ in which when it's disordered, it has to make the decisions for care. Yeah. You know, when your liver is is disordered, it's your brain that makes the decisions for care. But when your brain is disordered, you your brain has to make the decisions and they don't always make good decisions. Right. Yes. So, yes. Michael, in closing, you know, just, you know, you got a you got people listening that they are uh, they may have mental health problems. They may have a family member that has a mental health problem. They may be struggling with reconciling that with their faith. How do you uh, so give me a few words to, to give them hope in the context of the treatments that exist out there or, uh, you know, the, the presence of God within these uh, issues. What, what do you say to somebody to kind of to give them hope? Uh, I tell them to not focus on the problem, focus on the hope, focus on the availability of resources. Uh, the people that are listening to your program uh, probably live in communities where they have better access to treatment than most people in this world. Um, and are very blessed in that respect. Go to your OBGYN. Most people start with their OBGYN or their primary care doctor in their journey to try to get help with this. Uh, and that's a good place to start in finding out what's going on and who might be a good person to be part of the treatment team. You talked about uh, seeing a therapist. Uh, my usual patients, the good treatment teams, as a primary care doctor, a psychiatrist, a therapist, and maybe a clergy person, a pastor, mm. uh, some, some spiritual mentor. 
uh, that's working together to make sure that all aspects are addressed. That's a blessing. Excellent. Well, thanks for being with us today, uh, Dr. Lyles. It was uh, as good as I would have imagined. Uh, you always uh, can very articulately tell us about very difficult things, and people can really understand that. So again, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Dr. Lyles, and thank you so much, Matt, for being here. For everyone listening, be sure to tune into our next episode where Matt and I are going to be discussing uh, how to cope with anxiety in such a stressful world. And I'm excited to dive deep into that with you, Matt. And as always, I will leave all HHCI information in the show notes. Thank you all again for being here.